Well, good morning, High Point. I'd like to thank all of those who are here in the service in person. Thank those who are watching us online as well. Back in the 1970s, there was a research team of psychologists from Stanford University that performed an experiment on four-year-olds. It was called the marshmallow test. The kids were placed in a room one at a time with a psychologist who had a bag of marshmallows. They would ask the children a series of questions or give them certain tasks to do, and if the child answered the questions or performed the task well, their reward would be receiving a marshmallow that they could eat. But the real test came during a prearranged knock on the door when the researcher would get up and he would stick his head outside of the door, and then he would come back and he would say this to the child, I've got to go run an errand. I'm going to leave one marshmallow here on the table in front of you. If you don't eat the marshmallow when I'm gone, when I get back, you'll get two. But if you eat the marshmallow, that's the only one that you're going to get. Well, the moments that followed, needless to say, were tough on these kids. It embodied the, the constant battle that not just children, but even us adults have between impulse and restraint, desire and control, as well as gratification and delay. And these kids developed all kinds of strategies and how to deal with this struggle that they were going through. Some of them would sing songs, some of them would tell themselves stories, some would sit on their hands. One little guy actually licked the table around the marshmallow thinking that perhaps the flavor had seeped off onto the tabletop. But the amazing thing that this marshmallow test showed and what it revealed uh, a lot, it revealed a lot about the direction that these kids would take in their future because this research team tracked these kids through adolescence and into their adult life. And they found that those four-year-olds who were able to wait, well, they grew up to be more socially competent. Um, they were better able to cope with stress. They were less likely to give up under pressure than those who could not wait. The non-waiters, what they called the marshmallow grabbers, <laughs> they grew up to be more stubborn, more indecisive, they were more easily upset by frustration, more resentful at not getting enough. Most amazingly, the marshmallow waiters had higher SAT scores that averaged 210 points higher than the group of marshmallow gobblers. Moreover, later on, years of study showed that the marshmallow gobblers or grabbers were still unable to delay gratification. Their poor impulse control was much more likely, and I quote, to lead to delinquency, substance abuse, and divorce. Well, the truth be known, I believe that we all struggle with waiting. And I have a witness. Oh, you people are losers. You all hate to wait, and you know it. You guys always act so prim and proper on Sunday mornings. Oh, I better not say anything that makes me look bad. Get real. Our inability to control our impulses, our refusal to wait and to trust lies at the very core of our human sinfulness. That's why I know you're lying. It's been that way since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first took the, the bite from the forbidden fruit. In a sense, that was their marshmallow test in the Garden of Eden. And waiting is particularly hard for us in the United States of America because our culture teaches us not to wait. We live in a microwaving, 
FedExing, food, fast food eating, fast car driving, smartphone society. We don't like to wait for anything or anyone. And this brings me to our final sermon in our Christmas sermon series called Adventure because this morning we are going to focus on someone who patiently waited. She waited a very long time for the arrival of the Christ child, the Messiah, Jesus, to be born. And her name is found in the scriptures and her name is Anna. So if you will turn to the book of Luke chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, we will have it up on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 2, I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. We'll be reading verses 21 through 23 and then down to verse 36. Luke 21, excuse me, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Down to verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Mary, Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. You know, any introduction of this godly woman named Anna must begin with the, the fact that by the time Jesus finally came, Anna had lived a very long time. Some Bible translators have gingerly handled their description of Anna's age by translating verse 36 as she was very advanced in her years. And they do this because, of course, it's never good or prudent to refer to an elderly female as an old lady or as an old woman. In fact, I've learned the hard way that you can't even ask a woman what her age is. But you may have noticed that in the, the NIV version that I read, they put tactfulness aside. It just comes right out and says she was very old. But no matter how you word it, the fact is that Anna had been around for quite a long time. Most biblical scholars have estimated her age anywhere between 84 and 105. And that may seem like a wide range to you, but here's why. In verse 37, the, the original Greek is unclear. It could be translated as either she was a widow of 84 years or she was a widow for 84 years. If you opt on the second translation, well, then here's a realistic calculation. If, if Anna had married at the customary age of about 13 or 14 and had been married for seven years and widowed for 84 years, that would add up to 104 or 105. But however you translate the Greek here, it is a time in, at this time in her life, Anna was indeed old especially in her culture when even the age of 50 was considered an older age because people didn't live that long in, in some of those, those cultures. Now, as I said, Anna was a widow and she had been one for a long time. And we need to understand that being a widow in her culture was very difficult. 
it virtually guaranteed her a life of, of extreme poverty. Well, for some reason, Anna never did remarry, which is an unusual decision for someone to make in that specific culture. Some think that, some speculate that uh, her husband was the love of her life and she could never consider spending her life or sharing her life with another. I tend to believe that she did not remarry because God told her not to remarry. I think that he sometime gave her a command because there was, an there was an eternally significant purpose, I believe, for her long widowhood. And Anna faithfully obeyed and devoted her life to the service to the Lord. She apparently understood the principle that the Apostle Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians 7.34 when he wrote, an unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and and spirit. Perhaps God used Anna's example to inspire Paul to write that scripture. I'm not sure. But in any case, I am sure that Anna must have lived a very, very frugal life. She probably barely eked out a living through relying on charity or maybe supporting herself out of the, the meager remains of her family's inheritance. But probably the most important thing to point out about Anna is the place that she chose to live as her home. Verse 37 says, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. This must have been a spectacular place to live because the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem was the jewel of that city. It's said that on a sunny day, the, the gold along with the white stones that consisted of that temple shone so brightly that it would literally hurt your eyes to look upon it. And so here you have this cruel ruler named Herod, but few of us know that he was truly a gifted builder. And this temple was his greatest architectural achievement because it was respected as an awe-inspiring physical symbol of the one true God, as well as the extraordinary nation that he had established through Abraham and Isaac. And in Anna's day, it was also one of the busiest places you could be. Large numbers of priests hurried around the campus of that place throughout the day, attending to their sacred tasks and duties. In addition, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds every day of pilgrims from all over the world were, were appearing there. They were eager to see the temple and eager to worship the Lord. According to what we read, apparently Anna lived right there on the grounds of the temple. Perhaps in one of the apartments in the outer courts that you read about in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now these were very simple and modest rooms that were designed to be used as a temporary dwelling place for the priests who would come onto the temple grounds and provide their two weeks of annual service. It would be like our district saying, Pastor David, you've got to go down and spend two weeks at the district office and do this. And every pastor in our district would have to go down there and spend two weeks of our life. That's what they did in the temple. Perhaps, due to her sheer faithfulness to the Lord, the temple officials had given Anna one of these small chambers. Maybe at the beginning, she earned her keep by serving as a caretaker of some sort. We don't know for sure, but by the time we read this text, she would have been too old to perform any of those kinds of duties. So once she reached this stage in her lifetime, it seems as though the temple officials must have given her the chamber to live in for the rest of her days. Perhaps it was a reward for her faithfulness and all of her labor over the years. 
We're not certain, but that's where she lived. Now, as a side note, I think one thing that we can learn from Anna and the importance of ori- is, is the importance of orienting our lives around the church. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should live here in the church. If you did, I'd have to kick you out. But what I am saying is that the local church should be the anchor of our busy life schedule. The church should be the hub of our wheel. Everything I believe in our lives should revolve around our involvement in the local body of Christ, the church. After all, it is this campus where we find and where we cultivate friendships with other believers, people that, as the scriptures say, hopefully will stick closer to us than a brother. This is where we bring our children so that the Christian principles that we instill in them can be reinforced in our children's ministry, our our youth ministry, our young adult ministry. This is where we bring our families in hopes that they will find peers who will encourage them to grow spiritually, to grow in their relationship with Christ. This is the place where we are all equipped for ministry. And it's an important part of life. The things that happen here on this campus are an essential part of life. And the fact is that church attendance does have a very positive effect upon you and upon your children. There was a study done by Daniel Hungerman of the University of Notre Dame and Jonathan Gruber of MIT, two pretty smart guys. These two scientists did research that found when the states dropped their blue laws, these were the old laws that once banned commerce on Sunday. Do you remember the day when nothing was open on Sunday? You couldn't go to a restaurant. You might be able to get gas in your car. I don't know, were gas stations closed for some of you guys that were around at that time? You couldn't do anything. You couldn't eat. You You couldn't shop. No businesses were open. And so when these states dropped these blue laws, church attendance, they say dipped by 15% among those who had gone weekly. But that's not all. Their research also showed that former churchgoers became as likely as non-churchgoers to use drugs. And the gap between the two groups regarding heavy alcohol consumption closed sharply as well. Hungerman wisely concluded, what you do on Sunday morning could make a big difference on how you spend Saturday night. And perhaps Anna's example serves to remind us of this very, very important principle. So if you're not an active member of this church, or any church for that matter, then why don't you consider starting 2021 and become one? Anchor your life in the church, anchor your life in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your family will be better equipped to handle the storms and the difficulties of life. Let me get back to my story. That was a little side thing there. Anna's dedication to the temple life shows us another really good example. It indicates that she didn't run from God when she ran into the unfairness and the difficulties of life. Even when she remained childless like Elizabeth had, even when her young husband died only after seven years of marriage, she didn't respond to the difficulties of life by running from God, but instead she ran to him. Eugenia Price writes this, Anna permitted her heartbreak to force her to God. Those of us who have faced tragedy of any kind, particularly those of you who are widows, know that nothing heals the wounds like being consciously with God. Kristen Ditchfield writes this, 
Anna didn't succumb to the loneliness or a growing sense of futility and despair. She could have, but she didn't. Instead, Anna devoted herself to God. She devoted herself to loving him, worshiping him, spending time in his presence. And that leads me to one other thing that I want to note out, point out about Anna. She was someone who was known for the way that she listened to God's still, small voice. And she was someone that God used to proclaim his word to other people. She was someone who, like Mary, believed in the promises of God. And as the decades passed, Anna's unwavering faithfulness and her devotion to God gradually earned her the respect of those within the community of the temple. And it became obvious that this woman indeed had a very special relationship with God. Anna was recognized as a woman of wisdom and a woman of understanding. In fact, all of this is what offered her the rare distinction of being referred to as a prophetess of God. And if my research is correct, only a handful of women in the entire Bible were given this title. And I believe that that says something very big about Anna's spiritual maturity. People noticed her close relationship with God. Well, as Luke tells us, when Jesus was six years old, Joseph and Mary brought him to the temple to observe two ceremonies of the Hebrew faith. One was the redemption of the firstborn. This is where the parents acknowledged the fact that every firstborn male belonged to the Lord. It was a moment when parents, in essence, symbolically bought back or redeemed their son from God for the price of five shekels. Think of it, Joseph and Mary redeemed the Redeemer. The second ceremony was called the purification of Mary. This is where a sacrifice was offered for the cleansing of the sins of the mother. Mary and Joseph brought with them two turtle doves or, or two pigeons, which is seen, it's indicative of the fact that they were poor because there were other things you could bring. That was the minimum that you could bring. And please notice the fact, notice this fact. Mary, by doing this, clearly shows us that she realized she was a sinner just like every other human being. She was in need of a redeemer. She was in need of cleansing as much as any woman. John Hanby writes this, it is ironic that she paid the price for her purification while holding in her arms the Son of God who would one day pay the ultimate price of the ultimate sacrifice so that she and all who would receive him would receive the ultimate cleansing. Well, in her decades of service, in the temple, I am sure that Anna had seen thousands of these different ceremonies. But when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in, she knew that he was the Messiah. Somehow amidst all the throngs of people running around that sprawling temple on the campus of that temple that day, she happened to walk by this young couple. Perhaps as she did, she, she heard her old friend Simeon's response that's written in Luke verses, 20, these, what we just read, verses 25 and 35. But more possibly, I believe she heard the voice of God. Because in verse 38, it says this, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, it's funny because Anna is only mentioned in these three verses in Luke's gospel. 
we never hear anything more about her again. It's even hard to find information about her in non-biblical literature, just historical literature. This is it. She kind of pops up in a big part of this story, and then she's gone. But her brief moment in this spotlight has earned her the admiration of, of many people, including myself. And I look up to Anna because even though she was very advanced in her years, as one translation says, she didn't act that way. Anna doesn't seem old. She doesn't seem feeble to me. And there's three quick reasons why I say that. And the first one is Anna had excellent eyesight. I'll explain what I mean by that as I go on. Think of it for just a minute. There's hundreds of priests running around the temple doing God's business. And only Anna and Simeon, these two ancient relics that most of the temple officials probably thought were a bit odd, only they saw and only they recognized the Messiah of God when he arrived. Why did these two old people see what the other people missed? Well, it's not that other people in Israel were not looking for the Messiah, because they were. But their eyesight, and I'm talking about their spiritual eyesight, wasn't as good as Anna's, because they were looking for the wrong kind of a deliverer. For example, the Pharisees of that day, they believed a great celestial champion would one day come to earth. He would be another king from the lineage of David. He would revive all of the glories of the past, and he would free them from Roman bondage and restore the people of Israel as the true masters of the world. On the other hand, the teachers of their day, and I don't remember they had a name for them, and I apologize it's not the scribes, it's another name, and I forgot it. <laughs> they were looking for someone like Moses, who would come and teach and who would enforce the law. But there was also a small group of, of visionary Hebrews who were known as the quiet in the land. They had no dreams of violence or of power or of, of armies and banners or, or great messianic lawgiver. They knew, they understood Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah would be a suffering servant who would take our infirmities and our sorrows upon himself, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be crushed for our iniquities, he, would, he was oppressed and afflicted, he was led like a lamb to slaughter, and that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, and though there was no deceit to be found in his mouth. Well, those quiet ones devoted their lives to the studies of the scripture. They were in constant prayer. They were in quiet watchfulness until the true Messiah actually came. They believed and they clung to God's promise in Proverbs 8, where it says, those who diligently seek me will find me. And Anna and Simeon were both members of that group of godly people. They put their hope in the kind of Messiah that the scripture foretold. Not a ruler over the people of Israel, but a redeemer for all mankind. And by the way, the words in Anna's speech that are used in verse 38, if you'll read it, for redemption means to buy again. And that is found throughout scriptures. It's primarily used to describe the act of freeing a slave. Now, there are various Greek words used in the Bible for redemption. 
One term used is agorazo, which is meant to be bought in the marketplace. In the days of the early New Testament church, you have to understand there was an astronomical amount of slaves in the Roman Empire. About two-thirds of the entire population, if you can believe that, were servants. So everybody would have understood that word firsthand. People were taken to a slave market and they were auctioned off in the marketplace. And most of them lived their entire lives in bondage and in servitude. There is, however, another word for redemption, and it is exagorazo, and it's the word that is used in verse 38. It means to be bought out of the marketplace, never to be sold there again. This is the kind of redemption Anna was talking about in her description of Jesus' life work. Her long, lifelong study of the scriptures, empowered by nearly a century of prayer and of fasting, had enabled her to see something very, very important. That the people redeemed by the Messiah would be bought out of the slavery of sin, never to be sold into it again. They would be free indeed. So when the true Messiah showed up, Anna's excellent spiritual eyesight enabled her to see him and to recognize him. She put her hope in the right kind of a Messiah so that what she saw was missed by the other people. Well, on this last Sunday of the year, let me ask you, how young are your spiritual eyes? I mean, do you have a close relationship with God? Is it one that has matured through the years with prayer and, and studying God's word and maybe even fasting as Anna did? Have you matured in such a way that you were able to see him at work and join him in his work? Or are your spiritual eyes so old that you miss out on the joy of making an eternal difference in the world for the Lord? Well, see, Anna didn't just have excellent eyesight. Anna also had a very young heart. Now, like Anna, we all age physically. I'm sure she had all the aches and pains that come along with old age because all humans do. And if you're young here today, and I know that's a statement that can be defined by the person who's saying it, if you are young here today, don't tune me out. Because let me tell you something, you're not going to stay young long. You're going to wake up one day and you're going to be 40 and you're going to have a family and a house payment and you're going to go, what happened to my 20s and 30s? That's just the way that it is. If you are my age or older, then you know that there was a time when you perceived yourself as young. And it seemed like you would always be there, right? I mean, I think we all felt that way. Man, this is great. But then certain things begin to happen that remind us we're not immortal. And all the while, don't we, we fight the aging process, don't we even try to convince others that we're younger than we really are? But that won't stop our bodies from growing older. That won't stop our bodies beginning to break down. And that includes our mental faculties, which start to diminish as the years fly by. When we experience those moments where we walk into a room, and for the life of us, we don't know why we walked into that room. Ever been there? What's up with that? That is a weird, weird experience. This week, I came across a story about, a, about a couple, two couples that had been longtime friends, and they were taking a break from their weekly card game 
the wives were in the kitchen, the husbands were in the den. One guy said, hey, Joe, you played a great game today. I usually have to remind you what cards have been played, but tonight I didn't have to. And Joe said, well, that's because I went to memory school. Really, his friend asked, what's the name of that school? And Joe thought for a minute, scratched his head, and said, uh, let me see, what do you call that flower that's red with thorns on the stem? A rose? Oh, yeah, that's it. And then he turned toward the kitchen, and he said to his wife, hey, Rose, what was the name of that memory school that I went to? I told the earlier group you'd get better jokes if you paid more money, so just, just, just deal with what you get, okay? And no, Phil, don't give me another joke book. Well, like this forgetful card player, all of us grow old physically. But the truth is our hearts and our attitudes and our mindset doesn't have to. I mean, we don't stop living because our physical bodies start to decline. Remember, as human beings, we have eternal souls. So youth is an attitude of the heart. It's not a condition of the body. When he was 78 years old, General Douglas MacArthur said this, nobody grows old by merely living a number of years. People grow old by deserting their ideals. Years may wrinkle their skin, but to give up interest wrinkles the soul. And Anna, I believe, is somebody who understood this concept, this principle, because in spite of her advanced age of her body, her heart was very young. She was ready and willing and able to take on anything that the Lord gave her to do. Perhaps the Holy Spirit used the memory of her life to inspire Paul to write another one of his letters in 2 Corinthians 4.16 when he wrote this, We do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying because our inner man is being renewed day by day. And we are renewed day by day as we experience the adventure of joining God in his great work. You know, the world defines the prime of life in a much different way than the Lord or the scriptures do. The world sees it as a season when we are most physically strong and mentally acute. But God sees it as a season when we are most spiritually strong and literally intellectually humbled. That word humble comes up all the time in the scriptures, doesn't it? We have to humble ourselves. The world considers us in our prime when we have the greatest fame with others. When the Bible sees it is when we most want to please God. The world defines our, our prime as when we're in the best position to build our own empire. Scripture defines it as a time when we are most focused on advancing the kingdom of God, when we are most sensitive to the leadings of the Holy Spirit in our life. And Anna certainly fits that bill. She was definitely in her prime. And so was old Simeon. They were both very young at heart. And because of that, at a time when most people thought that they were candidates for the rest home, God chose them to do one of the most important tasks ever performed in history. And with a spiritual power that was born from years of cultivation, this elderly pair passed on a blessing that really, in a sense, primed the pump of Jesus' earthly mission. They named the gift that Jesus was. They equipped his parents for what lie ahead, and they spoke about the children to all who were looking for redemption. David Jeremiah writes, for years people would relive this remarkable day at the temple. 
the day the Messiah arrived. But the joyful message came through channels no one expected, not through the priests or the crowd favorites, but through two old forgotten relics of good old-time religion. I came across a statement this week that reminds me of Anna and her friend Simeon, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but it said, beautiful young people are acts of nature, but beautiful old people are works of art. Let me ask you, how healthy is your heart? Would people say you are in your prime spiritually, or are you past it? I want to read you an interesting story or a moment in the life of Itzhak Perlman. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a world-famous violinist from Israel. He says, on November 18, 1995, Perlman came out on the stage at New York's Lincoln Center. And just getting on stage was no small feat. Stricken with polio as a child, Perlman wears braces on both legs and walks with two crutches. So to see him come across the stage is a sight you don't forget. He moves painfully but with dignity until he gets to his chair. He sits down slowly, lays his crutches aside, undoes the clasps on his braces, tucks one foot back, and stretches the other forward. Then he reaches down, picks up his violin, notches it under his chin, nods to the maestro, and begins to play. On this particular occasion, however, something went terribly wrong. Just as he finished the first stanza, a string on Perlman's violin broke. You could hear it snap, going off like gunfire across the room. There was no mistaking what the sound meant. In fact, this is what the people who were there that night later said. We figured that he would have to get up, put on the clasp again, pick up the crutches, and limp his way off the stage, or else wait for someone to bring him another string or another violin. But Perlman didn't. Instead, he paused for a moment, closed his eyes, and then signaled the conductor to begin again. The orchestra resumed, and Perlman joined them where he'd left off. He played with a passion, power, and purity like the audience had never heard before. Of course, all of them knew that it's impossible to play a symphonic work with just three strings. But that night, Perlman refused to know that. Someone commented you could see him modulating, changing, recomposing the piece in his head. At one point, it sounded like he was retuning the strings to get new sounds from them that they had never made before. When Perlman finished, there was an awesome silence in the room when suddenly the audience exploded to its feet. Another individual said, we were all screaming and cheering, doing everything we could to show how much we appreciated what he had done. Perlman smiled. He wiped the sweat from his brow. He raised his bow to, the, to quiet the audience. And then he said, not boastfully, but in a quiet, pensive, reverent tone. You know, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. Well, let me ask those of you who are either in or approaching what might be known as the final quarter of your life. How are you using what it is that you have left? Are you ending well? And for those, again, of you who are young physically, don't tune me out because even now, the end of physical life is coming quickly for you as well. We must be mindful that people do not remember how we ran the race of life as much as how we finished it. 
It's very, very true. So it's important to consider how you will use the years that are left to you. Our final lap in life will be far more memorable than the years than the years that came before. And we need to remember Isaiah 40, verses 30 through 31, where it says, even youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, but those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not faint. In High Point, we can keep our hearts young, We can stay in our prime spiritually as long as, like Anna, we wait upon the Lord and we rely on his strength and his direction instead of clearing the path like we tend to do in our own time and in our own way. Well, that brings me to the final thing that I admire about Anna. She was a a dedicated runner. I mean, once she saw Jesus... Like it said in verse 38, she didn't stop going and telling people that the Messiah, the long-awaited Redeemer, had finally come. Especially those who she considered to be her fellow waiters that were in their prime. People like herself that had that same kind of great spiritual eyesight. Those who were still young at heart, who had been looking and longing for the true Messiah. As soon as she got done with Simeon, and Mary, and Joseph, and the baby, what did she do? She went, and she found her people, and she told this receptive group of people about what she had just seen, but you know, I seriously doubt that she stopped with just the people on her list, because the verb used for the word talk in verse 38 is one that denotes continuous action, so I believe from that moment on until the day that she drew her final breath, Anna could be seen jogging around that temple, buttonholing people left and right, talking nonstop about what she had witnessed, and I believe that people listened to her. If she had been 20 years old, Anna's words might have been easily dismissed as as illusions of idealistic youth. But at her age, Anna was past all of that. Her lifetime of faithful devotion could not at all be disregarded by anyone who heard her words. Her spiritual insight and her wisdom in no way could be denied at that moment. She now had an audience, and it was time for her to speak. Her testimony was not unlike that that is written in Psalm 71, verse 14 through 15. But as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. can't help but think of Ray when I read that. Are you a dedicated runner? 
regardless of your physical age? Are you ready to stop and to be willing to tell people about the love of Jesus? Isaiah 52, 7 makes it clear that no matter how old you are, it says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me close this down? This message today isn't just for the old members of this church, those advanced in their years. It's for all of us. This example presented here of Anna shows us how important faithfulness to God it really is. But you know what I have found is that faithfulness to God is quite a natural thing to do when you have personally experienced his undying faithfulness to you. And if some of our young people in this church were able to have the courage to sit down and have conversations with some of our old timers, the stories of God's faithfulness would literally blow them away. When they sat down and they would tell you of the incredible and yes, even miraculous things that have happened in their lifetime by the hand of God, I believe that it would refresh you like nothing else. There's an old song I believe Bill Gaither wrote called, The Longer I Serve Him, The Sweeter He Grows. Many of our elders have continually seen the sweetness of serving God over decades, and they've seen it lived out in their lives. And we have too. Even us younger people, you younger people, you've seen it as well. And that is the message for today. Don't miss out on what God has in store for you by keeping him at arm's length, by just testing the water and say, yeah, I think I like this God, but I'm only going to give him this much of me. He wants you to give him all of you. In other words, don't give him a portion. Give him your all. When you do, it opens you up to experiencing God's great faithfulness to you. You see it lived out daily. And your life then will likewise become a story as well. And you can share the stories of how God faithfully took care of you, provided for you supernaturally while serving him. So on this final Sunday of 2020, I want to end this service by singing a song followed by a prayer. I've asked Scott to lead us in that old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, as we reflect on God's faithfulness to us personally and this body, this church, over the last year, one of the most unusual years that I think any of us have ever experienced. And when we sing this song, I want you to really reflect on the words of this song, that our God is truly faithful. And if you're here today, or if you're watching online and you don't understand God's faithfulness, maybe you've never experienced it, I would say it's probably because you are yet to know him. Because he's a faithful God. And having a relationship with Jesus will show you how faithful he is to you. Day after day, after day, after month, after week, after year, it goes on and on. So after we sing, when we pray, this is a time where 
you can accept this free gift that Jesus offers called salvation. The Bible says in order to be saved, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he said he was, and that he came to this earth. And he walked and talked among us. He showed us how to live, but he died an excruciating death on the cross. And the blood that he shed is what atones for your sin. And all you have to do is confess that. You have to ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin and become the Lord of your life. And he will. Just pray a simple prayer of belief and confession. He will forgive you of your sin. The scripture said he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Scriptures also said you will become a new creation. And I don't know of anybody that doesn't need a fresh start because that's exactly what he gives you. Let's go ahead and sing this song. If you stand to your feet. And after this, we will close in prayer. Listen to the words of this song. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. faithful to you 
you were exceedingly faithful to her. In fact, the truth be known, Lord, you are more faithful to us than we ever could be to you. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that our hearts cry this morning would be faithfulness unto the Lord, that we would look at our lives individually and we would find the ways in which we can be truly faithful to you by not just serving you, but also promoting you to others and being involved in the kingdom work that you've called us to do. That you would keep us mindful of those who are lost and broken, who desperately need of a savior, and that we would respond. But I'm thankful that throughout the word of God, you show us faithfulness, both from your servants, but especially from you. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you for your faithfulness to this body of believers, especially during this past year. Lord, you've kept us together. You've kept us strong. It's been difficult. A lot of people we're not able to see, and yet they know we're here, and they know we're praying for them, and we're loving them, as are you. And Father, you've kept us bound together through the bonds of love and in our faithfulness to you and in your faithfulness to us, and I thank you for that. So God, let us be mindful as we move into this new year that we want to step it up a notch. The time is short, and there is much to be done. You are relying on this body of believers, High Point Assembly, to do even greater things than we have done in the past. And that can only be done when all of us do our part and are faithful to the things that you've asked us to do. So open our hearts and minds to what it is that you want us to do specifically, Lord. And let us not hesitate to respond to your leadings of your Holy Spirit. Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us, the things we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have, that they would be conversations that only build people up and not tear down. Pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share your goodness with others. Let people see the love of Christ in us and then be compelled to ask what's different and we share what is different. And in that sharing, Lord, they may come to know you. Pray that you will not let us stay silent about your goodness faithfulness to others. And Lord, until we meet together again, I ask that you would keep us safe. Keep us safe from COVID, safe from any other sicknesses or diseases that might come our way, safe from accidents that might trip us up until we can come together and worship you again in spirit and truth. I thank you for the sweet presence of your spirit in this place today. Holy Spirit, go with us, guide and direct us, empower us, use us. That's our prayer. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.